Welcome to the Rooted and Reaching podcast, a ministry of First Baptist Church in Charlottetown, PEI, Canada. At First Baptist Church, our vision is to be people deeply rooted in the amazing gospel of Jesus Christ, who then reach out into our neighborhood, city, and the world as we live and share the good news. Here is this week's Rooted and Reaching message from FBC Charlottetown. Well, as I said earlier, today is the fourth Sunday of Advent, so the fourth Sunday in our homecoming series here at First Baptist. And on the previous three Sundays, we saw how that idea of home uh, and a theology of home is woven through the story of Jesus' nativity. And, and, And that theology, as I've been coming back to throughout the series, I'm suggesting at least, all comes down to what our experience, what our regard for the idea of home is, and how that actually can shape and bring into focus our understanding of the nature and character of the God of the Bible. We've seen in the series how in the coming of the Messiah the first time, God incorporates the homes of key participants and how that becomes that thread that runs through. We started out with Zechariah. He was away from home when he meets the angel of the Lord. He then returns home where his wife had remained while he was away, and where they both stay secluded for the next half year or so as they readied themselves and their home for their firstborn son, who would be John the Baptist, who would be the one who would go ahead of the Messiah and who would call people to readiness. We also saw how Mary, having also encountered the angel Gabriel, fled her hometown found a loving home in a loving and holy setting with her relative Elizabeth. She remains there for a period of about three months. And last week, we saw Matthew's gospel and the specific instruction that Joseph is given by a messenger angel not to be afraid, but to take Mary home to be his wife, which we saw him do. Well, this week, this theology of home is demonstrated yet again in the retelling of the events leading up to the birth of Jesus the Christ. And so this morning, we're in Luke chapter 2, and I'm only going to read verses 1 through 6. The content familiar to many, it's a passage that we often reserve to read on Christmas Eve. We're still going to do that, Uh, but this morning, as I say, we're going to stop at the end of verse 6, and we'll save Verse 7 for our December 24th celebrations. And so as we turn to Luke chapter 2, verse 1, I'll admit right up front that the word, the English word home, doesn't show up in these verses the way that it so obviously did in the early parts of this series. But even though the main participants are away from their home, When we look at the context and the circumstances of Luke 2, 1 through 6, this theology of home that I've been talking about is unmistakably present. So we read this. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town, 
And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. So how does... How do these six verses, you know, connect with our theology of home? Well, let me remind you. Mary and Joseph, they've just made a home. Last Sunday, we talked about the divine reality of their home. It was soon to become the simplest, meekest, holy of holies imaginable. There wouldn't be any fancy curtains there like the most sacred place in the temple. This place, their place, where God would live, would be paltry in comparison, and yet it would house the soon-to-arrive king of all kings, their home. Their home in Nazareth, as meager as it was, located in a territory, their God-given religious homeland as Jews, it's being violently occupied and controlled by Rome, through its emperor at the time, Caesar Augustus. Rome, as Luke makes clear in laying out the timeline that I just read, had installed regional governors over these territories. And the one over Joseph and Mary's was Quirinius. Luke identifies him as the governor of Syria, and that just simply is the way that the Romans referred to the territory that had previously been part of the kingdom of Judah and where Nazareth was located. And so with the Messiah's birth just days away, incredibly, and no doubt frighteningly, they are ordered by the de facto occupying government to leave their home, and Joseph and Mary's case, to make a three-day trip to, uh, from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And so everyone living in the territories within the Roman Empire was required to pay a poll tax to Rome. And so by extension... This meant that Caesar Augustus, to be confident that he was getting all of the tribute that he had decided that he was entitled to, he needed to know how many people were living in those territories. That's why Mary and Joseph are on the road like this. I'm sure both of them wanted nothing more than to stay home, which, unfortunately, when you're under the thumb of a violent oppressor like Rome, that was just not a safe option. To take. They had to make the trip. I think it's fair for us to imagine that if Mary could have stayed home and maybe just, you know, sent Joseph ahead to register them both, she'd have done so. But she couldn't. Not without risking imprisonment or worse at the hands of Rome. The Roman order that the entire population be registered determinedly and unbendingly included every female over the age of 12. So Mary, despite being so very near to giving birth, she had no real choice in the face of this greed-based Roman oppression. Why Bethlehem? I mean, with such a vast Roman territory to cover... The method of counting at the time was for every person to return to the city of their ancestors. And so for the Holy Family, that meant 
the city of King David, which was Bethlehem. And so they would go there to sign in, to register. And that meant that Caesar could then just take the total population from each and every city, add it together, and know how much tax he would be extracting from those people. Bethlehem was the hometown of Joseph's people, descended from King David, the greatest king Israel ever had known. And so that town was known as the city of David. But that's the legal and the cultural reason for the journey to Bethlehem. There's a theological reason that actually carries far more weight. The prophet Micah, on God's behalf, had announced centuries, centuries before, as one of hundreds of messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, that the promised ruler, the one that would be sent by God one day to fulfill God's Genesis 3.15 promise, would come out of all places Bethlehem of Judea. Almost like he had it all planned out or something. (laughs) Incidentally, Bethlehem, that word, it means house of bread, which, well, that really adds this extra layer of significance when Jesus self-identifies as the bread of life. And I was thinking about it. When we break bread at communion, symbolic of Jesus' body sacrificed for our sin, when we stop and remember that Jesus was born not in his family home, not even in his family's hometown, but in a whole other town called House of Bread. I think that's worth meditating on. I think it's actually more than just fascinating or interesting. I think it's one more reason just to give God praise for the way that he has unrolled this incredible, incredible event. So this order for Joseph and Mary to leave their home, to go to the city of David, to be counted for taxation purposes, feels like it had to be just one more time in this uh, series of months where Joseph just had to have thought, come on. Really? I have done what you told me to do? Mary has done what you told her to do. I took her home to be my wife. We've readied that home as much as we could for the baby's arrival. The neighbors and the busybodies and the gossips, they haven't let up. They seem to know what's going on in Joseph the carpenter's house. Just ask them. But now, rather than remaining safely there, safely entrenched at home, They're forced, under penalty, uh, severe penalty, to load up, to walk for three days just for the opportunity to pay more tax. Could these days be any more difficult for Mary and Joseph? (laughs) The answer is yes, actually. Yes, they could. They make the three-day journey to the town of his ancestry, Bethlehem. By the time they get there... Joseph can't even get a bed for himself, more importantly for his wife, who had to be incredibly uncomfortable given her late stage of pregnancy. Along the way, we can picture him trying to make her as comfortable as possible as they travel. And then once they get to Bethlehem, becoming increasingly stressed out as every single place they go to is filled to capacity. Do you know who it's filled with? His relatives, 
that have all had to come back to the same town to be counted. His own people have made it that he hasn't got a place to lay down and his wife hasn't got a place to lay down. And right about then, Mary says, Joseph, I think it's time. On Christmas Eve, we're going to hear and then we're going to loudly celebrate the event that immediately follows that declaration that our humble king is born into a world walking unseeingly through darkness and its own sin. But one final thought about Joseph and Mary's state of mind at this time and how it relates to home. Remember that uh, Matthew's gospel describes Mary's now husband, Joseph, as a man who was just or righteous in keeping God's laws. Uh, Another word would be zealous, zealous for keeping the laws of God. That's how one commentator wrote it. Which has me curious whether all the emotional drama that he had, in all of that, he had unwittingly overlooked or even forgotten somehow the words of the prophet Micah that explicitly state that the anointed Christ of God would come out of Bethlehem. Now, the Bible is silent on whether Joseph recalled those words or not. But it does have me imagining. It has me imagining when the census order came down. Joseph, this zealous follower of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, maybe just maybe he thought to himself, ah, that's how God's going to do it. Okay, I get it now. As he promised, the Savior's going to come out of Bethlehem. I wish he would have done it differently than this, but this is how he's going to do it. Once again, truly like God had it all planned out or something. When we think back over this Advent preaching series, and I want to conclude here, that's actually what I want to point out more than anything. That Zechariah... Anything that Zechariah or Elizabeth thought or experienced, anything that Mary or Joseph thought or experienced, beyond any of those things is a very comforting and, I think, assuring element of the nativity story. God had it in hand. He had it all in hand. In Zechariah's home, in Joseph's home, even in the palace of Caesar Augustus, it was all under God's divine sovereignty. Now, Of course, all of these people were free to make their own decisions. They were free to make their own plans as they saw fit. Mary was perfectly able to say no to carrying the Messiah into the world, but she didn't. Joseph could have chalked up this dream conversation that he had with an angel as just some sort of weird nightmare, but he doesn't. Each and every person in this text had the God-given ability to ignore the God-given plan that they had been invited into, and they don't. They consent. Check that. Every single person from Zechariah to Joseph to Mary and 42 generations that came before Jesus in Matthew's genealogy, every single one of them could have chosen a different path than they did. Some could have made better decisions than they made. Every single one had the ability to choose to do the will of God or to not do the will of God. 
And do you know how they got the ability to choose or not choose God? God. God gave it to them. Because God knew. The song says, Mary, did you know? Yeah. (laughs) Thank you for that back there. (laughs) But God knew first. The angel of the Lord spelled it out. She had the choice to say yes. She had the choice to say no. And she said, yes, may it be to me as you have said. God worked through the decisions and the choices and the people and the places and the generation after generation, unknowingly leading to that unlikely manger in the house of bread, Bethlehem. Church, this this was the stage. This was the setting for all that surrounded Jesus' birth. Caesar didn't develop this. Caesar didn't cause this to happen. God wasn't caught by surprise by Caesar's greed. It wasn't a matter of coercing Mary and Joseph to travel to a town three days away from their home. The fact is that God was in it top to bottom. Our God was using all of these unlikely people, places, events, and decisions to work everything out according to his ancient plan that he revealed parts of hundreds of times in the Old Testament era. Caesar Caesar thought this whole deal was about Roman domination. The people living in the occupied lands thought it was all about enemy taxation. But God had long before decided that what he was doing was far beyond domination or taxation. This was about salvation. My point being that God in his sovereignty, and as we see it in these events, can and does employ anyone and anything to bring about his gracious and wildly generous act of rescuing the world from being forever separated from God. You see, God wants us to come home. He wants us to come home to him. And he stops at nothing, and he is stopped by no one. Just because Joseph and Mary were far from home didn't mean they were far from God. God desires that everyone would come home to him despite our daily decision-making, which either moves us closer to him or farther away from him. That's the whole point of Christmas. He came to us. It's a comfort to know that. I think it's a comfort to be reminded of that. Like when my plans aren't unfolding the way that I want them to, it's good to know that God's got it. When I'm feeling very much out of place in this world, not comfortable with a lot of what I see around me, God's got it. On those days when God has asked me to to do something or go somewhere that weighs so heavily on me that I don't think I can carry it or go one step further with it, God has got it. He's still at work. These roles that were just played by Caesar and Quirinius in facilitating the birthplace of the Messiah demonstrate how God's plan is above all nations, above all kings, above every plan that every person in human history has ever made. God had it. 
God remained at work. His plans came to pass right in the homes of those in whom he chose. And so in times of great confusion, of frustration, when our wishes, your preferences, our collective obedience to God doesn't feel like it's lining up, trust that God is at work bringing us to himself. We landed on homecoming as an Advent Christmas theme this year because of its theological significance, but also its significance to our own personal lives this year, homecoming. This may be the first Christmas that families will gather in larger numbers than they've been restricted in doing for several years. For others, this may be the first year that you aren't at home gathering with family and friends. Hear me when I say that God is in that. God is at work and God still provides. We've been hearing this through Advent. Home for some in our church family might require, I looked it up, Harry, 40 hours of flying with with layovers. 40 hours of flying. God's in that. Home might be Bahamas, Nigeria, Colombia, Bolivia, Brazil, Hong Kong. It might be PEI. It might be Ontario. It might be BC. Home might be three days away like with Mary and Joseph or maybe a matter of minutes from here. But regardless of the journey, the length of the journey home or our understanding of what God is doing with that journey, God is always at work in every situation to bring us home to himself so at work that he gave his son to make it possible that we come to his home. His is the home to long for and to count on at Christmas and every day. And as I was trying to cap off this sermon and say, like, what are you trying to say, Dean? You know, land the plane, you know, just wrap it up. All I could think of was this 1800s hymn called Softly and Tenderly. It frames it well and it kind of says in fewer words what I was hoping to say through Advent and y'all are probably wishing I just would have just read those lyrics and saved us all the time. But here's what it says. Come home. Come home. You who are weary, come home. Earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling, O sinner, come home. May we pray. Thank you, Father, for always being at work. Thank you for using the circumstances in our homes, and thank you for using the circumstances that impact our homes. Father, there are days when we could make better decisions than we do. That we could make better choices. And so today, Lord, we just recommit ourselves to you, to walk with you, to be listening to your Spirit's encouragement and conviction. Lord, may home be all of the things that we heard this morning. May our homes be safe, free, joyful,
filled with love. But above all, may they give evidence of who is king of that home. You, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. You've been listening to the Rooted and Reaching podcast, a weekly ministry of First Baptist Church in Charlottetown, PEI, Canada. Our theme music is inspired by Ben Sound. For more information or to support the ministries of FBC Charlottetown, please visit our website, myfbc.ca, today. If you found the content of today's podcast encouraging, please be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast and drop us a comment. In addition, consider sharing today's Rooted and Reaching podcast with at least one other person this week who might be blessed through it or become better biblically rooted through it. Until next time, thank you for listening.